Welcome to Revere Assets, Your Money, with Danny Stewart. You never know how far the stock is going to go down. Tim Razor. Danny knows I'm a geek for all of this stuff. And Don Vandenborg. Telling it like it is. If you're seeking the best stock knowledge this side of Wall Street, you've come to the right place. I'm sorry, did I steal your stuff? No, you didn't steal any thunder. Who's handling this segment? (laughs) For the next hour, Danny, Tim, and Don will be talking investing. Investing is 90% psychological, and I love that. Trades. The market will usually overshoot to the downside and to the upside. And dumpster fires. Because it doesn't matter what you think or what I think, and it matters even less what Danny thinks. And now, here's your hosts... Danny, Tim, and Don. Are your retirement accounts your money or their money? Let me repeat that. Are your retirement accounts your money or their money. Fidelity and Vanguard seem to think it's their money, not your money. And the economy. The economy. Is it recovery? The ugly truth? Deflationary bust? Extreme poverty? What's coming? More importantly, did the experts tell you months ago, now they're all coming out with all these stories explaining why it's evil and the Fed's bad and everything's, and it's not their fault. But if they're advisors, did they tell you to sell? Are they a lagging indicator that's of no value to you? More importantly, what does this mean for you, the investor? How do you handle this? Okay, is it FOMO, fear of missing out, or Fogel, fear of going lower? How do you, this is assuming that you got defensive. This is assuming you've been listening to us and you got defensive, you're heavy in cash, and you missed a big, big major swath of this downturn. Doesn't mean you didn't go down, it just means you're, down single digit, or you're not down 20% or more like the markets, okay? Now, the question is, what do you do now? How do you figure out to get back in or determining a bottom or at least a good entry point? Mm. We're going to talk about that because that's really the key of what we're going to talk about today. And then lastly, um, um, I also posted some articles, and we're also going to get to uh, – uh, Michael and Ted, they're going to talk about a huge sector, a huge uh, a sector with a lot of upside. And uh, Michael's going to go over the fundamentals and Ted's going to go over the technicals of a few sh- stocks. And then finally, I also posted some other articles about Social Security increases, um, the 4% rule, meaning you could take 4% out in retirement. That assumption's wrong now. Mm. And you should only take like 2.8% out because otherwise you may go broke. Uh, or, or maybe they didn't have a sell discipline and they lost 25, 30% of your money. And so now you can't take 4% out. Uh, just thinking, just saying. Um, and then, and then, um, so, and it's also has some trust about um, um, some special needs trust, but those are all posted in the website. And those few topics are for in I bonds. We also talk about I bonds. The rates are coming down on I bonds. They adjust those twice a year. All those are more specific planning to the individual. So uh, if, you, if you want any help on that or you want to talk about that, reach out to me, Dan, at revereasset.com, or just call me at 855-REAL-WEALTH. I don't want to bog down the show with little specific nuances because it applies to some people and it doesn't apply to others. But the Social Security benefit increase could affect a lot of people. It could push you up into a higher tax bracket if you're retired and collecting Social Security, and that's a big deal. But, so there's articles in there that we won't cover on the show, but they're definitely in the show notes that you can get. But first... First, we have to give the disclaimer. <laughs> always. 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 Standard Folks, standard issues. So your Money Radio podcast is for your edification and, and research ideas. It's for entertainment. It is not meant to be specific individual investment advice. If you want specific individual investment advice, like I stated just earlier, reach out to me directly, Dan at revereasset.com, or seek, seek your own investment advisor to get specific advice. Okay. Now it's out of the way. Now it's out of the way. Now it's out of the way. So Fidelity and Vanguard and others team team up to fight 401k cash outs. So (laughs) Fidelity and Vanguard and All All Light Solutions, a new partnership through the Retirement Clearinghouse LLC Consortium, 
for retirement record keepers. It's the portable portability services network. What does that mean? We're going to make it real easy for you to roll your 401k. And for most people, their 401k is in 12 crappy mutual funds Mm -hmm. with all kinds of restrictions. And we're going to teach you how to easily roll it into the next 401k with their 12, not always, but usually crappy uh, mutual fund choices. And guess who are the biggest mutual fund choices in most of the 401ks? Ah, you got it. Fidelity and Vanguard. Mm. So they're going to make it easy for you, for you to transfer it from them back to them when you leave work and go somewhere else. Folks, listen to me. If you don't hear anything else on this show today, except for Don's wisdom on how to get determine a bottom, when you leave your work, open up an IRA if you don't already have one and do a direct IRA rollover. And so you can roll your 401k assets into the IRA and then you can invest in individual stocks, ETFs. You can even do op- you can do whatever you want. Mm. Sky's the limit. And guess what? There's no ongoing mutual fund fees and, and third-party administration fees. A lot of 401ks, the employees kind of share in the cost of running the plan. See, most, most, most empo- employees feel like the employer's paying for all of the plan, and that's just not true. So the whole point is your most 401ks, you're limited with investments. You got limited investment choices, and it's more expensive. So really, you want to have an IRA rollover receptacle, and each time you move a job, you just roll your old 401k into that rollover, and it'll keep growing. And then you start your new 401k anew at the new job. Mm. Okay, real important. And by the way, if you actually, if you're self-employed and you're watching this show, and you actually want a really slick retirement plan. You can, you can reach out to me. I'm very, very good at helping people with 401k plans at Revere. We've got a very slick retirement plan. We just have full brokerage accounts. In fact, my guys can even do options if they want, but usually you want to allow stocks and ETFs, and then you can, then you can have a really cool retirement plan. So if you're self-employed by yourself, solo self-employed person, or you or have a small number of employees, you can really get some really slick plans. Okay, so we got that out of the way. Now, the economy. The ugly truth was a a article written by Josh Brown, downtown Josh Brown. He's on CNBC all the time, and I can't remember the name of the advisor he works for, uh, Rick Holtz, right? And they actually put fun people in fun, on on CNBC. He sounds like a stock trader, like he's really active and doing all that stuff. But at Rick Holtz, they actually put him in funds and do pie charts for the most part, mm. right? And so he wrote this scathing article he basically is a populist and it's in the show notes and it's about the uh, politicians the ceos and especially the fed and the media are all to blame for this big big blow up that we've had both in the economy and now the stock market and he said real estate's next and he goes on all these big mantra why this this is happening the question is josh i didn't see you on cnbc 3 months ago 4 or 5 months ago telling people to sell and move to cash, okay? <laughs> now, switching gears, or same along those lines, Kathy Woods came out with this article blasting the Fed, saying they're heading us for a deflationary bust. Mm. Actually, that's already happened to Kathy Woods. She's down, I don't know what, 50, big, bigly. She's down, I don't know, Don, you can look that up, or Ted or somebody can look that up and see how much ARC fund is down this year to date. But she's had mass redemptions, and she has shrunk considerably. So she's seeing deflation firsthand. Uh, But anyway, so now she's blaming the Fed. And then finally, Gary Schilling, uh, this kind of economist guy that's one of the advisors for, I can't remember, I'll find it. Uh, He works for, uh, I'll find it in a minute. Um, And anyway, he said that that the market is not going to find a bottom until we hit our, quote, puke point. His words, not me, mine. Yeah, basically he's saying, look, um, investors have to heed. They've got to find all the sellers have to be exhausted. And he may be right, and he is probably right. The question is, Gary, four or five months ago, were you getting defensive moving to cash and telling people to get out of the way that the market, the prices were breaking down? Mm. See, all three of these people are talking about how bad things have gotten, but they never told you what to do as a leading indicator, only as a lagging indicator. And then to add the cherry on top, 
The IMF now predicts a protracted global downturn and extreme poverty. And that's in third other countries, not necessarily the United States. But they said, and I quote, the worst is yet to, yet to come. And outside of 2008 financial crisis and COVID-19, they predict next year will be the weakest growth profile since 2001. They said a third of all the economies on the globe will go into recession. They're not sure. As, as sometimes defined, or what do they, how do they put that, popularly used to define a recession. Uh, no, that's a classical definition of recession. I know they keep trying to redefine it. Whole point is, they're saying things are going to get ugly. It's not over yet. Now, they blamed it on three things, the, the, the main three things we've heard. Um, Eastern Europe, meaning Russia invasion, skyrocketing inflation, and China's economic slowdown, with the primary driver being the Russian inflation, I mean, Russian invasion. Let me remind you folks, we started having high inflation before Putin invaded uh, Ukraine. Mm -hmm. It was already happening. Inflation and the monetary policy by the Fed is, in my opinion, and the central banks in general, not just the Fed, is in, in the, politi the, the, the political, uh, po the policies they put out, the fiscal, is, is more important, I think, than the Russian invasion. I'm not uh, um, making light of the Russian invasion. It was important. It did, ca did cause a lot of disruptions, especially in the food and, and the energy. But, but we've got bigger problems to find. Now, the question is, you read all those headlines. You hear all that stuff. But did that help? Did that help? I mean, if you're in a pie chart or you're a 60-40 balance fund with 40% bonds, 60% stocks, I mean, you're down 20, 25% year to date. Bob's your uncle. I mean, it, those things are lagging indicators. Yeah. Okay. Now, as far as the IMF predictions for next year, I don't, I don't, you know, they've been so wrong so many times. Who cares what they say? I mean, they never saw the 8% inflation before it came. Mm. They thought things were going fine. Right. So it's only after the fact. And a lot of these people, when things go badly, they write a story to suit the, the narrative that's happening. Same thing in a really bullish market. So these people are lagging indicators. CNBC is a lagging indicator. It doesn't help you. So with that said, with that said, I want to go to Don and the, and the guys real quick, because I want to talk about how is for the investor, how can we help you? How can we benefit you? Number one, what are the, how strong are the correlations between the stock market and the economy, right? How do you time a reentry? Now, this assumes that you've been paying attention and you got defensive and you're not down 25%. If you are, that's a lot tougher decision. You know, when you're kind of in between and you don't, you, you know, when you get a, sell, a, buy sells, a buy signal and a sell signal, you're much more, uh, you're, it's, the probabilities are much better. In other words, this is, nothing is cut and dry, absolute black and white, yes or right, no. No. Okay? This is all about probabilities. So when I get a buy signal or a sell signal, the probabilities are a lot, be, a lot cleaner than if it's in between a buy or sell signal. And so now, if you're already down 25%, it's much tougher to figure out a plan. And it doesn't mean you still stick with the old bad strategy. It's just that now I don't know that I'd liquidate everything lock, stock, and barrel. Okay, now you might have to do, we're, you know. So, so the big question is, is how do you balance FOMO, fear of missing out, with Fogel, fear of going lower? And, you know, yesterday's big massive up day, Okay, remember the 10 biggest up days all occurred in bear markets. So you hear that dumb story about, well, if you just miss the 10 best days, you miss 49. Yeah, but they cherry picked just those 10 good days out. You still got all the bad days right around those good days. So, number one, is there a way to determine that you should have gotten defensive? And then now, how do you come off the bottom? Okay, so you need to have rules to quiet your emotions and, and make you less nervous because when it's time to sell, you're going to be exuberant and happy a lot of times because you have big gains and then you go, well, I don't want to pay the tax if it's a tax, you know, and off the bottom, it won't feel right when you're, it's time to buy because you're scared to death. Mm. Right? right. All right. So with that said, and, and by the way, we are going to go to uh, Michael and Alex a little early, right after we hit this topic. Uh, so, uh, because last uh, week, uh, Alex didn't do, I mean, uh, 
Michael didn't get to do his segment uh, on the, the sector the analysis. Sector. Yeah. Is right. I got to so, hear this thing. So, Don, how do you how do you handle these kinds of markets? Well, I'm going to show uh, the the tool that we discuss in every single one of our uh, videos. First of all, on the screen right now is uh, a chart of ARC year to date. They're down 63.3 percent. Let's compare that to the S and P 500. Which is only down 24.32%. So 63%. This means that uh, all of the gains that uh, were acquired during the massive growth stock run up in, um, in ARC uh, have evaporated, and then it's down another 30.6% uh, from the beginning of uh, 2020, which is just horrific. No sell discipline whatsoever. But not only that, you have to you have to work hard to be as bad as this is. Yesterday, the market had a five percent reversal from negative to positive, and this fund Art K was still down on the day. Seven of the top ten holdings were down. The two that were up were up less than a half of a percent, and then Tesla, the biggest holding, was up. Just just terrible performance. But anyway, uh, let me show. Uh, the trend gauge. This is how we use to track the health of the market on three time frames: uh, the short-term 21-day exponential moving average, the medium-term 50-day moving average, the long-term 200-day moving average, and then additionally we track the health of leading stocks. What's leading the market? Is it defensive stocks? Is it uh, growth stocks? Is it geared to one particular sector? We try to keep a diversified list. Uh, we're not going to have all oil stocks or all semiconductors or anything on here. We want to have at least 10 uh, industry groups represented. But quite simply, there's uh, there's really these three time frames uh, is something that we'll, we'll keep track of. So um, once we get above the 21-day exponential moving average, we'll certainly have some money to work. But let's bring up the S&P 500 right now, and there are a couple of uh, tactics that we use. The first one is a false breakdown which is what you saw yesterday. You just get too stretched to the downside and you snap back. You never know how high it's gonna go or how long it's gonna go, but let's take one for instance uh, right here uh, or right here. Back in the middle of June, we had a two-day breakdown below the recent lows. A day later uh, in uh, on 621, we gapped up and that set off a run that was, uh, I believe, about 14% low to high from 36.36 to 43.25. So you never know how far, if you, if you catch the false breakdown and you start to put a little bit of money to work uh, and you just only add to it if you're making progress. Here's, a, here's another one. That was the first attempt at it. We never quite broke down, but I remember this day specifically on 7.14. I thought for sure we were going to break down and go lower, but we never broke these prior lows. Uh, we closed at the top of the range, and that really set off, uh, lit the candle, so to speak, to uh, for a bear market rally. And it was a nice bear market rally. Uh, we got in on the move above the 21-day exponential moving average here on 7.15. Uh, fast forward to a couple of, uh, in the past two weeks, we had a false breakdown right here on 9.30. Uh, we put a little bit of money to work the next day, a little bit the day after that, but it failed. It broke back below. We couldn't get above the 21-day moving average. So this told us that uh, it was a false start. We got out with small losses. Uh, when we undercut and then reclaimed the lows yesterday, that's a false breakdown. Uh, we put some money to work. We ran into the 21. We put a hedge on today against uh, half of the long that we put on yesterday, and we sold one of the longs we put in. So not making progress, unable to get above the 21 is, is a big deal. Uh, it, you can see uh, on this downtrend over the last six, seven weeks, we've only spent two days above the 21-day exponential moving average and uh, failed a week and a half ago to get above it, failed today to get above it. And that's really the number one signal that we're looking for before we're going to put any significant amount of capital back into the market is a move and then a higher high above the 21-day exponential moving average. We also want to see the slope of the line flatten out and start to trend higher. Uh, in basically every uh, instance during this uh, bear market, uh, you, you could have 
made some small uh, small to decent progress or got stopped out on very small losses uh, if he'd have used the 21 and gotten back out when you roll back below the 21. So from a short, shortest term perspective, uh, the 21 uh, ultra short term, you can use a short breakdown or the 8 EMA. Uh, that's another one that we track for health of the overall market. You can see a lot in here, the purple line uh, very often controls a downtrend or an uptrend. It, it handled the entire uptrend uh, or most of the uptrend from July to mid-August. And then it also contained this most recent downtrend when we broke back below the 21 after uh, the bad uh, CPI data on 913. Um, so you can see the ADMA, that's the purple line there. So the two ultra short-term signals are a failed breakdown in the ADMA, the short-term signal, the 21, medium-term, the 50, long-term, the 200. And we'll just progressively put money back to work, uh, keep our stops tight on everything that we add and uh, see if the market truly bottoms. They don't ring a bell at the top or at the bottom, uh, but you can take little probes to try to see if there's strength that's going to come into the market. Okay, when when you, when you John, I got a quick question. When you said it that, that just a, a week or two ago, you, you took a couple probes, got in a little bit, and then it was a false breakout and it rolled back over and you got out for a couple small losses. But the market sold off a lot more than that, right? After we got out, it did, yeah. yeah, yeah so that's, we're yeah. looking for the sign that we're going to see continued strength. Uh, the market continued to go lower, and then it had another false breakdown yesterday with the gap down on CPI uh, and then the strong positive reversal. Uh, these false breakdowns very often is just a sign of everybody. The boat got, just got too full on one side, uh, and it has to tip back the other way. I talked about multiple instances of when this happened over the last uh, nine months, like January 24th it happened led to a little bit of a rally. 224 it happened, led to a little bit of a rally. Uh, 430 it happened, led to a little bit of a rally. 520. Um, and then this was a false breakdown too on 714. And this is the one, uh, the strongest rally that uh, that took place after that false breakdown. So uh, that's the first step to get back in. And then if you get above the 21, and things are working, you can uh, press the gas pedal down a little more. Uh, no, absolutely. So, folks, if you've got, if so, when you're, well, you think, you don't know for sure, but you think it might be a bottoming, it might be established. What Don is saying is you get in, and if it doesn't work in little and in small increments, and if it doesn't work out, you get right back out. Mm -hmm. So you get a couple little nicks, but the market will sell, sell off a lot more if it doesn't work out but the main thing is look the the markets are not people always try to put their belief system on the markets they try to make the make what what happens in the market they try to make it sense with what they're seeing okay and a lot of times it won't make sense and so like if if i put my economic hat on and i think god the market's really bad I'm thinking it should go down another 20, 25%. It's, it's ugly out there. But I've also got to be flexible enough to know that it could easily rip roar and go up another 25% from here. Yes. No, and you got to be flexible either way. But if you know when you're getting in that you've got rules to take you right back out, it's not nearly as scary getting in, right? No. And that's, that's the key. Okay, we're going we're gonna to shift and we're, we're going to come back to the markets. But right now, we're going to talk about a sector uh, that Michael's been researching uh, that is actually uh, very bullish supply and demand issue. So, Michael, why don't you take it over and, and tell us what you're, what you're seeing? No, we can't hear you. Oh, no. <laughs> Hold on. I think he's got it. He's, he's going to figure it out. He's on mute? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hold on just a second. He's got it. I think he's got it. Okay, we got there. There you go. There you go. The man himself. I I unmuted it early, but it yeah. It always has a delay. Yeah, I appreciate you asking up front. Like, can you guys hear me? Knock that, knock that out. All right, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. So, so yeah, I was going to talk about this last week. Not much has changed in terms of the fundamentals or the technicals on the charts, so it's still relevant, and that is. Coal Ooh. and coal is 
not the most sexy, not the uh, most beautiful or cleanest source of energy, but when desperate times call for desperate measures, you've, you've got to sort of go with, with what the uh, macro environment provides you. And um, right now, um, it really seems as though coal is, is um, maybe not the best or, or the most wanted source, but it's the most needed and the, the most um, used source of, of energy. Um, globally in this environment so um so well it is the fuel for it, electric yeah. cars michael it is it is the fuel for electric cars um okay so going to the the fundamentals so basically what's happened now is um as we spoke about a few podcasts ago um natural gas prices have have spiked and been on a tear um for the last year and a half um levels that we haven't seen in in um many many years and um particularly in europe not not so much in the u.s but but in europe in not not as much in the u.s they've been coming down but in europe through the roof yeah europe has seen uh yeah unprecedented never never uh reached these levels before in the u.s we have but still um on a a five-year average uh Price level well, well above um, historical averages in, in the U.S. Um, and uh, basically, what that's done is um, these high natural gas prices have have driven a shift towards uh, coal fire, coal-fired power generation. Um, so electricity is uh, generated through through natural gas because um, it's typically the the cheapest source of of energy. But when you don't have that, you use um, in Europe, they they have to resort to, to coal because it's just not not a uh, feasible for them to to use natural gas at these um, elevated prices. And um, Russia was the third largest coal supplier to international markets in 2021. And now that you've cut out that supply and um, there's no prospects for it coming online um, or back to levels where it was uh, prior to their invasion of Ukraine, um, that's a big uh, destabilizer in the the supply. Um, and then you've got the largest consumer of coal, which is China. Um, they consume about four four thousand three hundred twenty million tons um, in twenty twenty one, and China and India consume double the amount of coal as the rest of the world combined, with China accounting for more than half the world's demand. Um, so, in the first half of twenty twenty two, global consumption was unchanged compared with the first half of twenty twenty one, and that. Um, that basically is even considering the the economic slowdown and the shutdown, the, the lockdowns in, in China. Um, so other developing nations have more than offset um, the, the demand um, increase resulting. So China and these other developing nations have offset the uh, demand increase resulting from these higher natural gas prices. Um, so for, um, for 22, so, so meaning, even though, even though there's this demand increase in in Europe and around the world, the shutdowns in China have have offset. Um, so the consumption's still around the same levels, but the prices have increased exponentially because of this lack of supply. So the problem here is that if China comes back online and they reopen, it, that that coal uh, consumption is is just gonna in, continue to increase, and and we're gonna see continued. Uh, pressures on on prices um so for 22 as a whole the iea expects a uh, global coal demand to increase by about one percent from 2021 to around eight billion tons this would match its all-time peak reached in 2013 and this assumes an economic recovery in china in the third and fourth quarters and the eu's coal consumption is estimated to have risen by 10 percent in the first half of 2022 driven by electricity sector's coal demand, which is estimated to have increased by 16%. And it's expected that coal consumption will rise further in the second half of 2022, fueled by the need to save gas for winter. And it looks like uh, there's no more uh, Nord Stream. So that's been taken off, um, which was the natural gas pipeline feeding Europe from Russia. Um, And several countries in the EU have extended the lifetimes of coal plants that were scheduled for closure and have reopened closed plants. So 
even though Europe has this uh, renewable policy, um, renewable energy policy, and they're really trying to shift away from fossil fuels, they're actually reopening and extending the lives of these coal plants and their consumption has gone up um, at, to, to all time high levels. Um, so Germany accounts for the largest consumption of coal in the EU. And um, going into 2023 and beyond, coal consumption is forecast to remain at elevated levels seen in um, 2022. However, there's still a lot of uncertainty around the developments of Russia's war in Ukraine, um, and also China and India's economic growth, and nuclear power could be a factor in offsetting European coal demand. So if they are able to um, reinstate these nuclear power plants and build more, that should uh, factor into the uh, demand um, side of, of coal in Europe. So um, what's interesting, if you look at these coal charts, um, BTU, for example, Peabody, um, most of them, or all of them peaked in, in 2018. And then they, um, they peaked in 2018, hit a bottom in, um, I think it was end of 2020, and have just um, been on a tear back near those, um, most of them have taken out those those all-time highs, but um, BTU, for example, has um, hasn't reached that high in 2018. And um, the reason for that peak in 2018 at BTU and um, and other other producers of coal um, were heavily affected when Trump announced his 25% tariff on steel and 10% tariff on aluminum imports uh, from China. So China is by far the largest coal market in the world. And um, if you're you're gonna basically reduce the amount of, of uh, steel and aluminum that that um, China's exporting to their biggest market, then um, that that'll have significant implications on their demand for coal to produce those those um, resources. And um, at the time, coal was also losing market share to cheap natural gas, which we no longer have that cheap natural gas for electricity production. So. And I'll, I'll get into it in a second, but um, investors were closing out positions because the fundamentals were no longer supported. So in, in coal, you basically, the, the two main uses for coal are you've got thermal coal, which is used for electricity production. And then you've got metallurgical coal or coking coal that's used for steel production. So uh, metallurgical coal is a more expensive form of coal. It's more difficult to produce. Um, they have to wash that coal differently um, and, and it's treated differently. So historically, it's always traded a significant premium to thermal coal. And these, these companies in the U.S. that were exporting large amounts of this coking, metallurgical coal to China, were significantly impacted. Um, so now going on to the uh, fundamentals currently of these companies and, and what I'm seeing that, um, that's bullish that I don't believe has been um, reflected yet in the price. Um, and why we potentially could see significant upside from here is that um, starting off with BTU, um, the majority of their revenues came from seaborne thermal and seaborne metallurgical coal. So that's uh, seaborne just means they're, they're exported uh, coal. Um, seaborne thermal accounted for 30% of uh, revenues in, um, in the first half of uh, 2022. Um, and then Seaborne Metallurgical accounted for 53% of their revenues, um, which was $481 million. Um, and for, for 2022, they're expected to export about uh, between seven and seven and a half uh, million metric tons, um, up from five million metric tons last year. And um, their mix of, of Seaborne exports, um, so metallurgical and thermal coal has been changing. Uh, thermal exports, Hmm. Might have lost him. Did he go off? I don't know. John, you're still here. Ted, you're still here. Yeah, I'm still here. Uh, maybe it's computer reset. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I'm like guys. Speak yeah, I'm lagging a little bit. Hmm. I don't know. Well, Don, Don, you want to go over those uh, cold charts pretty quick? Yeah, BTU. Uh, I um, do want to get back to the difference between the, the various types of coals because you. They're not consistent. You will see on some days that the metallurgic coals are outperforming and the thermal coals are underperforming. Uh, so it's not uh, it's not consistent. But let's let's talk about the five biggest charts. Uh, BTU, 
uh, is the leader. This is a li very liquid leader, trades 5.5 million shares a day, priced at 26. This is forming a massive flat base between 18-ish uh, on the bottom and 30-ish on the top. You can see a false breakout here at 33. But back in uh, February of this year, there was a big cup and handle that it broke out of and made a very nice run. It basically doubled uh, in the span of a couple of weeks. So when these are needed, um, when these stocks are in demand, they can really move. Uh, but very volatile, so they need to be sized appropriately. You really need to look at the ATR, and you really need to follow uh, trail your stop up higher because they uh, trail your stop up as they move up because they can pull back very hard. You can see right here, pull back from 33 all the way to 19 uh, in a couple of weeks would have given back more than half of the gains that you had uh, from the low. But right now, you can see anytime it gets near this 200-day moving average, the last three times it touched it, institutional players have come in. Uh, and purchased it. We, we see this frequently. I talk about this a lot that uh, the 200-day moving average is considered a value area for value managers. They think they're getting a bargain if they can pick up something at the 200-day moving average. And that's been very true since the middle of July uh, with BTU. And it's something that I would kind of hesitate to buy on strength unless there was an absolutely massive uh, move on it and it broke strongly above this 29-ish uh, 30 level. You could probably draw a declining trend line from 33 to 29 to this recent high here at 2874. Uh, holding nicely when it bounces off of the 21 day exponential moving average. Is Michael back? Uh, kind of. I think he might be back. Uh, we've got, uh, well, no. <laughs> well, I think, I think he's made the case on call. Let's go to the chart. Ted, are you there? Is yeah. Ted, Ted working? Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, well, there, there's a. There's, all right. Yeah, I was going to say, Michael, Michael's kind of back. Still having connection issues, but Michael, we can see you. Ted, Ted, do you have anything on the stock? Me? Yeah, for BTU, um, I agree with Don, but I'm also taking a contrarian standpoint here. So, like, there's this technical setup that David Ryan kind of coined called the porcupine. And when you look at BTU on that downtrend line that Don talked about, it hits like that 30 area, like that 30 supply area and immediately just tumbles back down. And to me, that's wide and loose price action. And if you were to zoom out on the weekly chart, I think this started like this, the stage two run started around like four or five bucks and it kind of put in a local top around 33. So to me, I think like all the great fundamentals that Michael has talked about perhaps have been priced in already. And now we're beginning to form a top. So those are my thoughts. It's very possible because if you, if you, yeah, if you look at the, the earnings growth for next year, uh, from 21 to 22, we doubled. Uh, from 22 to 23, the earnings growth is only uh, supposed to be 2%. So uh, that's very possible. You do see funds are continuing to accumulate it going from 281 to 364, although it did drop from uh, June to September by, by a few. So most of the accumulation took place in the first quarter of this year. Uh, which coincidentally was when the big move ran. So it's very possible. Uh, we are dealing with um, a lot of political, geopolitical issues with energy. And if, if, it, if it's in demand, if it breaks out, uh, we always have stops in place if something doesn't work. So that's it's extremely yep. cheap too with a PE of only five. So that's BTU. Yep. Um, well, hang on, hang on, because I, I want to jump in there. That's an absolute great point because even though, so, and, and it goes not only to the individual stock, but the overall markets themselves. So the fundamentals are spot on and more and more countries are going to coal out of necessity. They have to, especially with these new uh, electric car policies and what have you, the demand for energy, electricity is only going to go up. So the demand for, but the question is, has that all already been priced in or people, or is it a continuing theme and more accumulation is going to follow? And that's why you have to follow the charts. That's why you got to separate the, the chart, the stock from the business. It can be a great business, but is it timely? Is it time right now? So everybody knows Apple is a great company, but do you want to own Apple? Like four months ago, you owned Apple. You, you, you got your head handed to you. So there's a difference between, and the same thing with the markets. There's a time to be in the overall markets, and there's a time to be, to, to get defensive. 
Yes. So anyway, sorry, Don, go ahead. You can take the next one. Yeah, the last thing is if you looking at the chart, buying this on weakness is certainly uh, the best move. You can see here bounce off the 200 day moving average at 1742 ran to 25 in three weeks pulled back, bounced at 18 at the 200-day moving average up to 29. That's more than a 50% gain in uh, three, four weeks. Pulled back again to 1940, all the way up to uh, 19. That's a 50% gain in three weeks. So uh, when it moves, it moves quickly, uh, but buying it on weakness as opposed to typical growth stocks that you buy on strength, that's, that's kind of typical with commodities that uh, you want to own them on weakness. Okay. What's, do we have another coal stock? Michael there. You guys hear me? Yeah, there he is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, it, I, I guess if uh, for, for the viewers that, that are interested and want to learn more, I can just send them the, the report I've done because it, it's hard to um, explain it all in, in just a few minutes. Uh, and also the way that these companies work uh, from, from what I've discovered is that it's uh, it's very complex. Um, their, their capital structures, it all depends on, um, like for example, the reason why BTU is underpriced um, or, or priced a lot cheaper uh, than than like uh, HCC or CIX is because um, there's certain there's certain covenants in in their debt that requires them to to pay off certain amounts and they're restricted from their capital returns programs. And uh, once they're able to renegotiate those terms or return more capital to their shareholders, then um, then the stock will benefit because in the U.S. there's a lot of restrictions on um, increasing production, and they're not able to to build more coal facilities. And it's kind of what they've got now, what they're producing. Those volumes aren't going to increase, so it's just a matter of how can they return the most capital possible to shareholders, and they're not able to do that at the moment because of the restrictions. So, yep, leave it, leave it, leave it, leave it to the politicians to That's right. to to interfere with business and, 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 and screw it up. Mm -hmm. That's um, happened with that. Go I'm going to go through the top five coal charts from a liquidity standpoint. standpoint. Uh, okay, we did uh, BTU. Next up is AMR. And, uh, and again, Michael can uh, send the summary. Met very clear, this is metallurgic coal because, well, metallurgic is in the... Um, name <laughs> uh, sure is the name yeah so so this one's focused on uh providing steel and another situation where buying on strength doesn't seem to pay off on this but if you bought it at the 200 day moving average uh move up from 104 to 152 50 percent gain in a couple of weeks if you buy it at the 200 day moving average here again 116 to 155 pretty good move um so again, buy on weakness seems to be uh, the proper trend for these uh, these types. Third one is Arch. Uh, Arch Resources, uh, you'll see it again, very jagged uh, action. But again, buying on weakness, in this case, from 120 to 173, if you buy it off the 200-day moving average. It did, and it seemed to be consistent with all the coal stocks that they had this breakout. Uh, in the first quarter that led to really big runs. This also coincided with uh, Russia and Ukraine escalating their um, situation there. So that certainly had something to do with it, but uh, very clearly you don't really want to buy these on strength because every time they try to go higher, uh, they get smacked down, kind of like smacked down, kind of like uh, whack-a-mole. Um, and then the, let's see, the other two that I wanted to talk about. CEIX? Yeah, CEIX. Uh, consolidated uh, Energy, another one. This one is showing better relative strength. Its uh, mm -hmm. liquidity has really improved also, uh, trading 616,000 shares a day at a $66 stock, forming uh, a decent base right now. Another one that had a big run and a breakout. Is that, is that a daily, Don? Is that a daily? This is a, this is a daily chart, yeah, of CEIX. Um, this one never touched the 200-day moving average, so clearly showing relative strength from that standpoint. I don't have any details on uh, what they get in, what they're into, uh, but you can see the nice earnings growth in the last quarter. 
uh, 90% sales growth and huge earnings growth. The thing about this one is going from 2022 to 2023, massive jump in earnings. Uh, so this is probably the one that stands out mm -hmm. uh, from an earnings jump standpoint. And it's only got a PE of 21, so more expensive than the other ones. But when you've got these growth numbers, uh, this uh, certainly jumps out to me. Ted, you have any information on CEIX? I don't have fundamental information. I think Michael would have that. Standpoint. Well, well yeah, let's, let's I'm, talk. I'm back if you guys can hear me. Um, we, we can hear you. Yeah. Uh, we just looked okay, at yeah, sort so, of CEIX, so Michael. Yeah. Yeah, so what they do is at the moment, uh, most of their sales are domestic. They produce metallurgical coal. And then they've got um, this um, this facility on the East Coast that they um, are able to export um, a lot of their, so they export thermal coal. Um, they can produce export around 15 million uh, metric tons. And the, the only issue that I noticed is that, um, and maybe this is why the earnings projections are higher going forward, is that at the moment um, they export some of it as their own production, but most of it is actually um, a third-party uh, production coal, and their um, their revenues from that were only fifteen million dollars. So it looks as though the majority of that is um, is is from uh, that third-party coal. So maybe going forward, the agreements they have, they can sell their own coal as opposed to third parties and generate more um, earnings from that if if coal prices stay elevated, but most of their sales are domestic, which is is not not great because in the U.S., uh, like with this administration, it's very anti uh, anti fossil fuels and especially coal. Ed, what are you seeing in that like chart? A... In the chart, I actually think this is probably the strongest chart out of all the coal stocks. Um, the other ones you've seen like whiplash action between like the long-term moving averages, as well as a medium-term 50-day. This one's being contained by the 50-day and forming a cup-like formation. So I'd definitely be interested in this much more than the other coal stocks. And then we can talk about the earnings as well. But um, from a purely technical standpoint, I definitely like this the most. Right. Michael, from a fundamental standpoint, let's go to the two that we, the charts that we looked at. Uh, first, Arch. Can you give us just a sentence or two? Uh, what we noted is this extremely choppy action and really the opportunity to buy it was on weakness, very similar to what we saw in BTU. What can you tell us about Arch in a sentence or two from a fundamental standpoint? Um, so they used to be more focused on thermal coal. They recently switched. Um, now they're heavily focused on metallurgical. They export um, a lot of metallurgical coal. And then the issue with Arch is that because they're predominantly that coking coal that's used in steel manufacturing, if there's a global slowdown, then there, there's less... Uh, less steel production and um, use for, for their coal. So they made a big gamble on, on switching from thermal to met. And um, that's, that's the biggest risk. Um, so, so yeah. And you can see the big, that, the that's big why they're not dropping. performing as well. But it could, but it drop projected shop and earnings next year. Yeah, but it could pay yeah, off. In the, it could pay off big in the long run. And if it does, you'll see that in the charts before it, or just right as it's starting to work out. That's yeah. why it's important. The and going off Don's point about the earnings dropping off, I think that's reflecting in the chart. If you go on the weekly, um, part of stage analysis, I'm not sure if you guys have introduced Stan Weinstein's stage analysis concept on here. Have you guys done that, Don? No, uh, not really. We do it in our studies, but we don't talk about it a lot um, in okay. uh, when we go through individual charts. But uh, okay. yeah, I see what you're talking about with it rolling over. So the yeah the thirty week moving average is rolling over. We're seeing lower highs in the relative strength and the price. So those two are confirming each other as well. We're breaking key moving averages as well, and I think we're hovering right below the two hundred day right now. So I think that's kind of the price is confirming what you're talking about how earnings are dropping in the next year. Yeah, certainly the weakness of the charts that we've looked at yeah. so far. Let's, let's go back to AMR really quickly. Michael, what can you uh, tell us on a fundamental standpoint about AMR? Um, AMR is also uh, coke and coal, steel, same kind of thing. Um, I didn't look into AMR actually as much as the other ones, so I don't, um, I don't have too much information. I can get back to you on that or look it up quickly, but... Um, I just wanted to say out of the out of the four that we went through, BTU, Arch, CIX, and HCC, um, BTU, in my opinion, has the best um, 
potential and, and the best story because they're um, right now their margins on seaborne thermal, which is what they export most of, is, is the highest. Um, and thermal coal, which has never happened before, is more expensive than, than metallurgical coal. So they're just booming. And as long as prices stay even remotely close to where they are, um, and they can get into that capital return program. Um, they've got earnings in two weeks. We'll see what they mentioned there, but I, I think it's the most promising um, opportunity of, of the four. We did not talk about HCC yet. So uh, here's our first look at the chart here, breaking under the 200 day moving average uh, in several cases would make it appear weaker uh, than BTU and then CEIX. What do you have to tell us on HCC? So HCC as well, they they export um, that coking coal. So there, there's a lot of competition in that uh, the coking coal, which is also why BTU um, will benefit the most from from the high prices in thermal. But uh, basically, they export um, most of their their non-thermal metallurgical coal um, to manufacturers in Europe, South America, and Asia. And um, out of the in a margin comparison, they actually have the uh, the highest margin. So just to compare them. Um, BTU for the metallurgical coal that they're exporting is $185.65 per metric ton. Um, Arches is about 187.45. CEIX doesn't mention it, but the revenues were super low. And I think that's because most of it is that third-party coal that they're exporting. And HCC, actually, their margins are $309.61. And the reason for that is because they export most of it to um, to to Europe as opposed to, um, to to China and Asia where there's been that slowdown. So um, they're getting the highest margins, uh, maybe in the way that they hedged, um, need to look further into it, it it's complex stuff, but um, they, they do have the highest margins at the moment. So, and they, they strictly export uh, metallurgical coal. So I guess there's concentrated so risk you, in that too. So as far as uh, attractiveness going forward you mentioned btu being your number one from a fundamental standpoint we always have to see if that uh carries over into price action but what would you consider your number two from a fundamental standpoint an opportunity um number two would probably be um it, it if we're looking for it, it depends on time frame i guess in the next uh in the next 12 months, six to 12 months, probably um, HCC, just because um, their their margins are so much higher and, and if prices stay elevated um, in, in Europe, because in Europe now what they're doing is because the price of thermal coal has actually exceeded the price of uh, met coal, they're, they're burning um, met coal, this, this coking coal to produce electricity because it's actually cheaper now than, than the thermal coal. So as long as that, that price, um, like, anomaly uh, remains and, and um, HCC is able to continue um, exporting at these elevated levels of, with, with these high margins, they, they should benefit as well. And then longer term, um, probably um, Arch. I think even though CIX looks the best technically, I think their fundamentals are the, um, the weakest just because uh, most of their production at the moment is, um, is sold domestically. And I, I think um, from a regulatory standpoint, uh, there's there's the most headwinds um, domestically as opposed to to just the necessity like in in Asia China and India they're they're not going to stop burning coal so <laughs> I, if I were in the space I'd rather be an exporter um, than than selling it um, in the U S just just my opinion yeah pre tax margins are the third uh, line item here the the uh, in the earnings boxes. So uh, a comparison supports what Michael was saying about uh, which ones are stronger, which ones are weaker, but it, it confounds you because uh, the best price action, CEIX, also has uh, the lowest pre-tax margin. So that's ultimately, we, we ultimately will go by what the chart says, but uh, that's why going strictly by fundamentals uh, and not by the chart can burn you sometimes because the chart is forward-looking uh, the fundamentals are as of uh, a certain period of time, whether or not they'll come to fruition is a different deal. But although the pre-tax margins are lowest on CEIX, we do have the earnings growth there from 2022 to 2023, which again, uh, they report on 11-1 in a, about two and a half weeks. So we'll see 
how that comes forward. Anything else uh, you guys want to add to uh, before we wrap up this segment? Um, yeah, I would like to discuss like the cyclical stocks inverse cycle. I think it's pretty counterintuitive to most people. And so with cyclical stocks like coal and oil, we tend to see the best earnings, sales, and um, the companies raising dividends during like the topping phase. And ironically, like everything's the worst. The news is the worst. The earnings are the worst. Almost like non-existent when like these cyclical stocks bottom and start turning up. And so if you to if you were to look at the chart, it kind of describe it kind of like illustrates this inverse cycle. And wasn't that certainly the case with semiconductors, which are very clearly technical related, but um, very cyclical also. You can know everybody's saying, mm -hmm. "Oh, we have got a huge shortage in semiconductors." Mm -hmm. Well. Here's the SOX index. It's been cut it down by 40, 45% since the beginning of the year. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, how can you talk about having a semiconductor shortage? And, um, you know, we'll be looking in a, in a couple of months at a semiconductor glut once they clear the back, uh, the backlog and then there's no demand for them. So uh, I think that's the market looking forward to that. And then when things start to look like garbage, they'll bottom and, and start going higher again. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. Anything else to add? Uh, no, no, that's, that's all. all I, I just think in terms of cyclicality, yeah, um, it's uh, this is just an interesting story because of the um, just the dislocations and disruption from from the war, and and it's unlikely that Russia's uh, uh, supply comes back online, and it's just um, in in this case. Um, there, there's fundamentals that support it regardless of uh, an expanding economy and just the fact that there's been such a lack of investment and um, there's no, um, they're, they're not increasing supply anywhere. Um, in the U.S., because of the regulatory restrictions, they just can't um, increase supply from, even though they're higher prices from last year, their supply um, production has, has remained flat. So it's not a, it's like an inelastic uh, uh, supply. Um, situation where um where yeah the, the the there's just so many factors which makes it that's what i love about this environment it's it's just such an interesting uh, global macro environment that that it's like there's so many moving parts and so many puzzles to figure out that um that can affect price and and it's it's really it's really fun and and stimulating and exciting all right, guys. Well, listen, thanks a lot. And by the way, folks, the biggest takeaway from the show today, if you hadn't learned anything, price is truth. And price is going to lead you what to do. Your fundamentals may confirm the story, but, but price will lead is the best leading indicator out there. And it's really the consensus of the big institutional investors of what is coming next. That's what it is. It's a vote on what is coming next. And so that's why it's very, very important. So while fundamentals are very important, the technicals, in our opinion, trump the, fun, the fundamentals. And that's why we're heavy in cash and have not gotten cream this year. And a lot of people that are doing the fundamentals and doing these pie charts and holding are down 25%. And by the way, Don, you said that da the S&P was down 24 and whatever percent. That was after yesterday's big update as well, right? It was 23% after yesterday, and now 23. down another 1.7%. 1. 1. Okay. Oh, so you were counting today, down. intraday. Okay. All right. I got right. it. All right, folks. Well, listen, if you like what you heard, please tell a friend, tell a neighbor. Just send them to revereasset.com. In the upper right-hand corner, there's a subscribe button, and they can click that and put their name and email address in. We won't reach out to them or spam them in any way. It's up to them to reach out to us. Um, but our daily market insight video, it's a short market video that that Don does every evening, and pretty soon Mike and Ted will be uh, joining in uh, to, to, to talk about what the overall market conditions and what we actually are doing in our portfolios. I mean, we're extremely transparent, more transparent than any advisor that I know of. And then you also get this podcast once a week when it goes out. By the way, this goes out on Friday, Saturday morning. We recorded about noon on Friday, uh, noon central time, essentially. But but if you go to our YouTube channel, just Revere Asset, go to YouTube and just put in search for Revere Asset and you hit subscribe, you'll hit this as soon as Zach posts it, which will be in a couple, in like it's Friday afternoon. Yeah, usually about so, eh, one, two o'clock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, if you really want it earlier, sign up for our YouTube channel. Folks, listen, have a safe 
uh, and happy weekend. And hopefully you did get defensive and you weren't with the Lemmings crowd that lost 25%. And we'll talk to you next week. Oh, you can you can reach out to any of us at Dan at RevereAsset.com, Don at RevereAsset.com, Ted or Michael at RevereAsset.com. And you can always call us old school at 855-REAL-WEALTH. We'll talk to you next week on Your Money. Because it's not how much you make, it's how much you can keep. Your Money Radio podcast covers general topics and investment ideas for research. It is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be investment advice. If you want or need investment advice, contact your own advisors or reach out to Revere Asset Management for individual investment advice. For more information, just go to revereasset.com.